Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I'm looking forward to making new episodes again soon, but I am so excited to bring you another guest-hosted episode with Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. Dr. Sanchez-Walsh's guest-hosted episodes have been a joy for me to listen to, and these collaborations have been very inspiring. In addition to this episode on Brazil and the book Migrational Religion, Context and Creativity in the Latinx Diaspora, Dr. Sanchez-Walsh hosts episode 207 with Dr. Felipe Hinojosa, episode 227 with Dr. Christy Nabin-Warren, episode 228 with Dr. Brett Hendrickson, and also appears as a guest in conversation with me, on episode 176. Without further delay, please enjoy Dr. Joao Chavez in conversation with Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh on the Classical Ideas Podcast. Okay, welcome to Classical Ideas Podcast. I'm guest host, Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh professor of religious studies at Azusa Pacific University. And today I am interviewing Dr. Joao Chavez, whose new book is called Migrational Religion out at Baylor University Press. And it's just a fascinating look at migration, migration and religion and the intermingling of ethnicity and religion and identity. And, you know, what we make of this great, uh, kind of paradox of our times of just masses of people who are considered illegal and and how we can uh, overcome such things, how churches try and overcome it, how pastors live through that kind of an idea. Some more than others find themselves pressed to become activists and some don't. But that's what we want to talk to Dr. Chavez about today. So welcome, Dr. Chavez. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this talk. All right. So give us a, some background, a broad overview. Uh, this book is about Brazilian Baptists. Um, numbers, uh, a little bit of historical background, kind of set the table for us about what we're going to be discussing over the next hour. Well, thank you. Yeah, so th the book is 
a, a part two of a longer project that uh, deals with my, my particular interest, research interest, which is the, the, the construction and the maintenance of Brazil-US networks, religious networks. Um, and uh, the, 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 the first half of this part of my dissertation and expanded second half of my dissertation, in the, in the first half, uh, I tried to, uh, to trace the history of Southern missionaries in Latin America, paying particular attention to issue of, issues of race and religion um, and how um, they, uh, the, the presence of Southern missionaries shaped Latin American evangelicalism in general. Um, but I look at, at Southern Baptist missionaries in particular. Um, but in tracing that history, uh, in the, around the 1980s, the Southern Baptist Convention and the networks that they've created uh, in Brazil through the Brazilian Baptist Convention uh, begins to get concerned, particularly at churches in the East Coast begin to wonder how they can do better at reaching uh, the immigrant communities in the East Coast, particularly. Uh, and this is where this story starts in a way, the story of, uh, of Brazilian Baptist networks and the churches that they began created in the United States. Uh, when uh, churches in the East Coast start to recruit Brazilian missionaries to preach to Portuguese, uh, enclaves in the East Coast and some in California, uh, rather than uh, the Brazilians. So uh, this story begins with, uh, again, Southern Baptists wanting to bring Brazilian Baptist missionaries to preach to Portuguese enclaves in the US. Uh, but in the 1980s, there's also mass migration from Brazil, um, mostly because of push and pull economic factors, but there are other factors at play as well. And these ministers that come here began to notice this influx of Brazilians and they began creating Brazilian churches. Uh, and, and, uh, and then as this story develops, uh, the, the, what, be, what begins with a denominationally controlled kind of story uh, begin to be more characterized by loose networks that do have a denominational identity and affiliation at, at some points, but are more fluid than that. But uh, the question that I'm, that I'm pursuing here, particularly with these groups, as I began to study them and to visit churches and to do some archival work in churches, uh, and also to have my own experience as, as, a, as a Brazilian who have lived some of, of these dynamics, uh, was uh, a question that sometimes uh, in, in dialogues that deal with world Christianity is less asked because often uh, the question that is asked within world Christianity in general, when, when especially when one's looking at broad regions is how are immigrant, immigrants changing the US or changing Europe? Um, the, the question that is less asked is how is the migration experience in, in this country is actually changing the immigrants? in the immigrant communities and in this particular stance or instance, the, the, these religious communities. So I'm trying to understand here or trace a historical but a, a account, but also an et, with an ethnographical uh, interest as well, or how this migration uh, experiences over time change the identity of these religious communities uh, rather than the most often asked question, which is how are these communities changing 
the U.S. religious landscape. I'm, I'm trying to look at uh, at, at this a similar dynamic, but through a uh, a kind of a different angle. Yeah, yeah, that's that was interesting. That part of the book where it it just strikes me anybody, and, and I don't generally study missions, uh, though you you almost can't help it, right? When you do Latinx, Latino, Latin American religion, you just automatically study missions. But the, the pragmatic, the relentlessly pragmatic approach of like, we're just going to get people who know Portuguese to go to go to the East Coast and talk to, you know, Portuguese speaking people in these churches who have real very little relation at all to Brazil, other than they are Portuguese speaking. Am I correct? Or are or are some of them uh, some of these churches that you were looking on the East Coast? Did they have a Brazilian um, group there already, or was it mostly Portuguese speaking? The, yes and no. I mean, the, yeah. those 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 neighborhoods that changed. So, for example, the first Brazilian Baptist missionary comes to Newark uh, to uh, to uh, Walnut Street Baptist Church. There was second German church in Newark at one point. Mm -hmm. uh, then the the neighborhood changed to. Uh, you know, to speak English and then changes again to speak Portuguese. So if you look at the minutes of the church, they swift from they shift from German to English to Portuguese to, yeah. to Portugal to Brazilian Portuguese. So I mean, the, the, there is not a direct connector that connection there, other than the neighborhoods changed. These churches don't have the the resources to reach because of linguistic barriers. So right. the, the and then they call Brazilians in. So in that sense, there is not a deep connection. But in another sense, there are deeper connections. Mm -hmm. uh, since 1911, Brazilian Baptists have missionaries or have a mission in Portugal. Um, so is the is the second oldest mission from the Brazilian Baptist Convention. The first was Chile in 1908. Mm -hmm. The second was Portugal in 1911. And by the time uh, the, the, the Brazilian Baptist Convention sent missionaries to the US, they are already trying to reach the Portuguese enclaves in Canada. So it's not a surprising option uh, or a new option. Yeah. Uh, there is no connection to these communities necessarily when they, they, these missionaries come. But there is in the in the Southern Baptist in the Brazilian menta Baptist mentality both uh, this this idea that if you want to reach the Portuguese Roman Catholic the Brazilian Baptist is the one to call, right? So in in that sense that that is that is a connection there already. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, you use two terms in the book, and I wanted you to clarify it for our listeners. One is brazuca and Brazilian. If you just unpack that for us so we know, if you use those terms interchangeably, will we be doing them justice or how should we define those terms? Well, yeah, thank you for the question. What the, the brazuca is a term that it's already in the literature of, um, of Brazilian migration to the US uh, for, for a while. And, um, and it basically means the way I use it and most use it, a Brazilian, first generation Brazilian immigrants in the United States. Whereas, whereas when I use Brazilian, um, I'm often referring to uh, other, other Brazilians that might, that might be in Brazil or might be here, but not as, uh, as migrants in the same way. So all I mean by brazuca there is Brazilian immigrants here. I, I use brazuca churches a lot, but just to mean that when I say Brazilian churches, I'm probably saying that these communities are in Brazil, 
Whereas when I talk about brazuca, I'm talking about uh, communities uh, or in groups that are here, but are predominantly uh, comprised of Brazilian immigrants. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm just curious because I, I read in the the looking through the book is this religious competition, which is always so fierce, as you know, uh, and it has been for uh, centuries in Latin America. Uh, Catholic and Protestant, uh, Protestantisms of various stripes, and Catholicisms actually of various stripes. Um, the the animus um, historically uh, between both, uh, kind of going back and forth. Um, uh, any evidence that you saw that that was brought over as kind of a, uh, did that migrate as well? The, the desire to reach uh, Brazilian Catholics here as opposed to reaching Catholics in Brazil, um, the animus that has been there historically amongst uh, more sectarian Protestant groups vis-a-vis -vis Catholics. What did you find? Yeah, that, that, I mean, this is also an evolving phenomenon, right? Um, it, whereas you see in Brazil today, a, a sort of a, what we call the, uh, some people call Paul Freston, uh, uh, a sociologist uh, called Bolsonaro, for example, the first pan-Christian president of Brazil, when you have some coalitions uh, between uh, Roman Catholics and, and evangelicals. Uh, around the new conservatism of the country. Uh, and because we live in a hyper-connected world, that development happened within church communities here too. Uh, but in terms of evangelism, um, it is very much uh, another one of the heritage of heritages of the Southern Baptist Convention, the fact that Brazilian Baptists are very much anti-Catholics. Um, generally speaking, they, they do have um, a, 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 a very distinct uh, um, opposition to uh, you know, uh, some, some, uh, some Roman Catholic traits, but what informs that also is anti-Protestant violence that had happened in Brazil um, up until a few decades ago, especially in the interior. So, I mean, that, that, that are a lot of, uh, uh, that's a lot of historical tension there. Uh, to, to speak about, but they do bring that here. Yes, definitely. They're, they're, when, when, when they are they begin these missions here to reach the Portuguese, there is no doubt that it is to convert Portuguese people from Catholicism to Protestantism, uh, and what the missionaries will call convert them to the true gospel, true gospel of Christ, right? So in that language itself, you see already Sure. Uh, a kind of uh, a kind of uh, antagonism uh, mm -hmm. in in some ways, and kind of uh, disposition towards proselytism, and also another interesting uh, aspect in these communities that I have seen—not all of them, but some of them—because mm -hmm. of the different forms of of uh, members that show up in these churches. Not all of them are Baptist. The churches are Baptist. The leadership is Baptist. They are. Uh, um, uh, connected to the Southern Baptist Convention, but the members that show up sometimes come from Presbyterian backgrounds, from Methodist backgrounds, who have been baptized as infants. And sometimes they're allowed to transfer their membership without having to be baptized by immersion, which they wouldn't be in Brazil. Uh, uh -huh. but, uh, huh. but, but, but some pastors allow every kind of infant baptism to uh, to you know to uh but roman catholic oh, if you're yeah. roman catholic you can't 
right? Yeah. So, uh, Correct. which Correct. kind which kind of shows that uh, that, uh, that 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 kind of antagonism mm -hmm. that, in some ways, again, I mean, it, it's 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 getting uh, less uh, pronounced, but it has been something that goes goes both ways. I mean, myself as one who was raised in in Brazil as a Protestant, as a Protestant minority before the explosion of Pentecostalism in the region, uh, I mean, it, 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 it was never lost on me uh, that, that uh, there is also animosity in the direction of Protestantism from the Catholic majority. I mean, and, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a negative animus, as you call it, that, uh, that, goes, that goes both ways. And it goes both ways in communities, uh, religious communities in the U.S. as well. Although is a developing dynamic, and uh, and in a, in a way, it has uh, uh, found some spaces for coalitions under uh, the new administrations for for reasons they are not necessary necessarily uh, to be celebrated, but nevertheless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's a whole different podcast, Brazilian politics. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That and that, I don't, I don't know that that would make you popular or not. Maybe with some people, very. Maybe with some people, not. Who knows? Um, but yeah, you know, it's it, the dynamic is it's it's ongoing, and there's you know I, this is an aside, but it it is interesting, you know, to to uh, to be on that Protestant side, right? I mean, you're the, the, you grew up in it, it just dominates. It's everywhere, you know, Catholicism, the the the, mm -hmm. the churches, the architecture, the the pop, you know, this the folk Catholicism, you know, it just it seeped into the culture uh, for centuries, you know, and it, it's. It's quite unique. I don't. I don't know that immigrants here appreciate. Maybe beyond this first or second generation, if they really appreciate um, how deep some of that animus goes. It I mean, it, what, uh, it does. It, it does. And I I actually I, I reviewed an excellent book recently by Erika Hilden, Religious Conflict in Brazil. Hmm. Uh, when I I tell the, a story that happened to me uh, when I was when I was growing up, she uh, Erika deals mostly with uh, the, the from the 1920s to the 1940s uh, but i remember growing up uh and uh, as a um, as a teenager and uh, very vividly and again i recount that story in my re my review essay mm -hmm. uh where i'm going out of the coming out of the church and i see people talking you know there's some commotion happening and mm -hmm. i come to the group of young adults they're older than i was uh, and uh, the story that they were telling is that one of their families that lived in the interior, I'm, I was from a larger town, this wasn't common there, but this, fam this person's family lived in the interior, and they, and they had allegedly, this, the story that they were telling was that they were stoned uh, you know, for, for, being, for being Protestants and defying the authorities. Uh, you know, there, I mean, the, the, uh, you have uh, Frey Damien, who I've met, uh, mm -hmm. Friar, there was a capuchin friar, very famous in the region. He was he was in process of, of uh, beatification now, uh, and Erica problematizes uh, this process itself. It was very much engaged in anti-Protestant violence in the interior. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I I, I don't think that uh, this uh, this negativity from the Protestant side to the Catholic side is justifiable at all. Uh, but it is, but, but but there are some very recent historical reasons uh, that that maintain it now, uh, because this mm -hmm. these stories I know are deployed and redeployed. Of course, um, even when they stop happening, and even in my generation, they were still going on. Um, that's not to say that when Protestants are in power, they won't do exactly the same, right? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. But uh, but but the way in which the history developed, uh, yeah. I think, has something to say about this. Yeah. Well, these narratives, they uh, you're you're exactly correct. They're deployed for a certain end, right? <laughs> they're not. Yeah. If, if they'll they'll shrivel up and and be revamped into something different if they don't serve their purpose, right? But because they serve their purpose, they're repackaged and revitalized and targeted at different groups different times for different reasons but it's it's always you know generally on both sides it's very self-serving right to main to maintain some kind of, of separation between the two to and to make sure that everybody knows that they're different right. that they're separate and 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 that we're right and we're right and we're right and it's it's like a never-ending thing unfortunately That's um right. I, yeah i am talking to dr Zhao chavez and his book is migrational religion from Baylor University Press. My name is Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, guest hosting here on the Classical Ideas podcast. This was a really good quote, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to read it back to you, and then we'll talk about what you mentioned here, unpack it for us a little bit, unbelonging. So, quote, ethnic denominationalism is an institutional manifestation of the anxieties of unbelonging, great quote raised by complex migrational dynamics. So first of all, what is unbelonging in the people that you researched here, that you spoke to, and you, you did research in the archives? And how does that play out in this complexity of migration and religion that you studied for your book? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for that quote. Uh, yep. Yeah, so the part of what I'm trying to show here in the book, I think that captures a lot of of uh, what I'm what I'm trying to show that quote itself is um, it, it's how uh, this distance from displacement from what you know uh, from language from groups with which you have some kind of so you feel like you have some kind of solidarity theologies and and religious dynamics that fulfill needs that are created by these dislocations of migration these are all things that create this sense that uh, these groups don't belong to society, and here there are lots of overlaps with other immigrant groups as well. Right? So um, there are some particularities to the way in which this happens in these brazuca communities, but that's also lots of overlap uh, with with others. Um, here I'm looking primarily how one belonging develops in first generation uh, Brazilian immigrants, but there is unbelonging in other generations too. Um, I see, you know, some of that in my own kids because of being, you know, minoritized in, in, in primarily white communities in some ways. And although I live in San Antonio, they don't experience as much as they, they would have if they lived in other places. Um, but, but, it, but it is there. So I realize that this unbelonging is broadly shared by, by folks uh, of, uh, that are minoritized in the U.S. But here... I look at how this idea or this anxiety of just not being from this place and that's been always so evident, uh, not having papers, many, uh, an estimate of 70% of the, of the members of these communities either were undocumented or had been undocumented before. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, how can you belong in a place where you can even, you know, have a, proper documentation, the idea of language, uh, and also something that develops within Brazilian immigrants that is also something that is a, a lively debate in the literature, uh, mm -hmm. primarily within sociology of, of uh, Brazilian immigrants, is what sociologists call the myth of return. 
is that Brazil, Brazilian immigrants, uh, and, and this is, I, I asked the pastors that I interview about this, uh, and they didn't know, of course, about the literature, but they said in their own ways that they see this. Uh, they always talk about the fact that one day they will go back. So they are not here thinking, I'm going to build my life here. My kids are going to live here. We're going to be here generations. They come thinking, I'm going, they are target earners, right? They, at least that's how they see themselves. Many stay, but they stay you know, still with the, deploying the narrative that one day when they have this much, they will return. Uh, so there is not a, this, this uh, in, intentional uh, horizon of even trying to belong in some ways, because this is not a place where I will stay. This is not the place where I'm going to retire. This is sometimes some of them would even uh, you know, say, this is not the place where I want my kids to grow up. I'm here because I have an objective. I need to you know, make some money to start a business there to help some family member, and then I'll return. So one of the pastors I talked with, I quote him in the book, he says, Brazilians don't migrate to the US, they come. <laughs> they, they, they come, yeah. uh, but, but they are thinking about the return. And sociologists have noticed as they study, they study this group with time that sometimes there's lots of inconsistencies with these narratives of return. Many do not return, but the idea of, of going back is there. And, and that creates, again, I think it enhances not only the sense of unbelonging, but also prevents uh, some of these immigrants from developing strategic ways uh, of building roots, you know, of, of, uh, of growing roots here. Uh, that is, it's, it, it looks like there are some indications that it might be changing, uh, but this myth of return, it's part of this sense of unbelonging as it expresses itself in these particular communities too. Yeah, that that's fascinating, and I, I I I bet that that myth of return is largely tied to um, first generation, second generation, third generation. Because I mean, I'm sure that my was it my great grandpa who rode the rails uh, from uh, San Luis Potosi, and then one day decided, ah, eh, I guess I'll give it a go. Was hoping mm. one day to go back. <laughs> mm. Right. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah we've, we've been here since 1912, right? Mm. Over 100. So we're not going back. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and, and we're in our third and fourth generation. Very few of us, uh, you know, my immediate family speak fluent English, uh, fluent Spanish, rather. And it's, um, you know, uh, I think it, it, it kind of lapses with time and also just the realities of like, uh, uh, you're no longer working for remittances to send those back. You're no longer mm -hmm. working to bring certain family members over. You're no longer working uh, to, you know, and, and my guess is that as that generational shift happens, right, is that the myth loosens its grip on the imagination, right? That, and, that, and it, I, yeah, that, That's right. No, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is a new group, a new immigrant group. You know, which uh, is interesting to to do exactly. I mean, what what you're doing to look at how this developed uh, it, with within Mexican American migration, for example, where your know, fourth, fifth, you know, generation, uh, you know, some folks didn't cross the border; the border crossed them. Yeah. Uh, and 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 there's all kinds of of of, of differences here. There's just not the time uh, in the in the numbers in these communities yet. Uh, yeah. to, to have studies on 1.5 second, third generation. Will be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, well, you know what? That's called job security. 
(laughs) (laughs) So that's what you want to like plant your flag on that and go, you know what, that hasn't happened, but I'm just the person to start looking at that. So yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious about this. You you talked about the the, the pastor. You did a lot of work with pastors to kind of Mm -hmm. examine their, um, their outlook on maybe their own ethnicity, their own religious identity, and, and whether they saw themselves particularly as being indebted to helping this great undocumented uh, group, whether they saw themselves even as in solidarity, not even with, with their own Brazilian brothers and sisters, but with other Latin Americans, right? And I, mm-hmm. I found it fascinating that, that sometimes you didn't, you didn't see that, right? That there's, as you mentioned in the book, uh, that the, this pan-ethnic identity is not used. Um, uh, do you think that's strictly language, or what else is going on there? That that there's maybe not a, not as much solidarity as we would have thought. Examining right. a, a marginalized community would have naturally kind of mm-hmm. birthed that solidarity. Maybe it didn't, but uh, explain that for us. Oh yeah, yeah. That 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 is is uh, it's 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 fascinating too. I mean, I think it should be recognized that first generation immigrants from any country in general will prefer their national identities or identi- identifiers than a pan ethnic identity. So if given a choice, um, immigrants from Latin America, first generation immigrants, would choose to be Mexican over Hispanic, Chilean over Hispanic. Peruvian over in that sense that is overlap here mm-hmm. um, whereas whereas um, this is also true here that national identifiers are preferred over panethnic identifiers I mean it takes it takes time to be socialized into panethnic identities but um, uh, so second third generations they sure. have a presumably be an easier time because they already socialized into those names and you yeah. know rather than having to really think about uh, how do you fit within that imagination? That said, the di- the difference here is that um, uh, Brazilians try to capitalize on uh, what they see as the majority culture's positive perception of their culture. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. so where, where, whereas the U.S. form of white supremacy, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of influences people to think of uh, Mexicans or Hispanics uh, in in, in extremely racist and negative ways. Mm -hmm. It does does not the same to Brazilians. One example that I often cite is that uh, uh, in 2017, CNN had the list of the 10 coolest nationalities. Brazilian... (laughs) Brazilian was the first and was the only Latinx nationality there. You are, pretty, you are pretty cool, Dr. Chavez. You are pretty well, cool. You have I, to. I, if the, if, whoever did that list didn't go to Recife. <laughs> uh, they, they never, they never been there. Uh, you know, so I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a romanticization. People think yes. of carnival yes. and soccer, yes. you know, and they yes. think that, I mean, that's cool. I mean, it's, there are so many different Brazils. Of course. Uh, of and course. That, that people have, and this is true here. I mean, it's true. Those are purely imaginary. Uh, <laughs> but, but it is an imagination that might be socially, socially advantageous. Right. Uh, you know, right. so, uh, 
So the, the, the paradox here, and I criticize these communities here, is that uh, by trying to capitalize in this constructed social imagination of the US form of white supremacy that romanticizes Brazilian culture, uh, you're, you're, you know, the, the, this, these individuals uh, internalize the very discriminations that put obstacles for, to their success. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you know, uh, yeah. to, uh, and pastors that have been here longer have noticed this. The Brazilian government, for example, have influenced. Have used some pastors, some of them that I interview for this mm-hmm. book, uh, to talk to Brazilian communities so they can during the census that they that that happened that they would check the the Latino box and then say talk about their nationalities. Pastors sometimes want to have a Spanish speaking and a Portuguese speaking ministry. In their in their churches, and mm-hmm. some of them had 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 difficulties. Um, and so, um, because of what they say, Brazilian ethnocentrism, they say they call Brazilian racism. So the pastors lament that, mm-hmm. uh, but but it takes time to to to, to you know to develop that awareness. That is something to be lamented. Yeah. Um, and 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 as migration fluxes. Uh, change and and and, and fluctuate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's just uh, the different communities navigate those 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 things differently. But there is a strong ethnocentrism, especially from uh, Brazilians, Im- Brazilian immigrants who arrived uh, not too long ago, and pastors have they haven't been here for the, for a longer time. See the advantage uh, of uh, not only the advantage of of being within the Latinx, mm-hmm. panethnic, Hispanic, panethnic identity, but also the foolishness of trying, uh, you know, to to deny it because uh, by the time you explain you're from Brazil, so maybe so and so romanticizes you, they already looked at you, um, right. you know, and, uh, and 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 many of us, you can tell the, the difference between, you know, uh, Brazilian or. Or, um, or Ecuadorian or Mexican. I mean, you're going to be socialized in, in a particular category, either you want it or not. So, I mean, there are, only, there are not only advantages in terms of coalition building, uh, in terms of uh, building racial ethnic solidarity that goes sure. beyond your particular community. But right. there is also a set of foolishness in trying to incorporate or, 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 uh, or um, internalize, uh, you know, this white supremacist disposition right. that that yeah. think of Hispanics as being less so. Uh, that yeah. that that some of that I found to my shock and sadness happens so much in this community. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, I think it broadly. You know, I, I don't think a lot of Latinx Protestant Catholic communities have not come to terms with, you know, the very nature of Christianity as a colonial project, mm. and that that's been uh something that's not discussed if it's discussed it's um it's used as a marker against people to say that if if you don't fully accept this colonial past as it's you know the the glorious narratives are surrounding that with saints and martyrdom etc and and if you don't complicate that with with the, the very real pain that this colonization cost this continent uh, that we have even started to explore yet, really. I mean, I think some people have, you know, but it's it's not something that is talked about in churches um, mm-hmm. that I've noticed, 
you know, and I've, I've been studying churches a long time and uh, it's just not discussed, right? I think it's deeply, deeply, it's deep down in there somewhere, you know, but it's not something yeah. that's discussed. Um, what do you self-identify as? Somebody ask you, what, what are you? Well, I, I would say that I'm both Brazilian and Latinx. Yeah. Um, and, um, and Hispanic. I have no, I mean, some, some Hispanics with whom I've been with mm-hmm. uh, have, uh, have uh, been more welcoming of Brazilians saying they are Latinos and they are Hispanic because of the Spanish language, sure. which, I, which I actually, I've, I learned Spanish working with Mexicans in the restaurant business in Texas. <laughs> and I have been, and I have, I, I have been given uh, the, the title of honorary Mexican. So I, I suppose that I can, uh, by, by, my, by my, my, my co-workers. So I suppose I can claim Hispanic and Latino. But I, but I do think, I part, me and other Brazilian scholars, I'm writing now mm-hmm. with a sociologist friend for a textbook, a mm-hmm. chapter on why Brazilians are Latinos, why Brazilians are Latinx, why, you uh-huh. know, and, and, and fit in there. Uh, because I, 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 do, I do think that uh, it's not only uh, what makes sense, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's also uh, a, a, a project, uh, the pro- by project, I mean, this in- intentional inclusion within a pan-ethnic identity. Uh, that has many practical benefits. Um, it, I mean, I think it is just within the definition of Latinx folks, people who have heritage from Latin America, mm-hmm. uh, you know? And yeah. um, so in that sense, it just, uh, it, it makes no sense. What, what, what you know, it makes no sense to me what these immigrants in some of these communities have done, which is, you know, uh, try to deny that fact mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or at least try to, Overemphasize national identity uh, to the extent that panethnic identities become irrelevant. And I know that panethnic identity are constructed. I know there is a history. I know, sure. you know, it's in the you know second half of the 20th century mm-hmm. for census purposes. I mean, those are construct socially constructed, uh, you know, uh, um, kind of uh, categories. I get yeah. that. I'm not yeah. naive regarding that. This is all constructed. Uh, but I think it is a, a, a project that, uh, although it is because it is there in the way in which it is there, uh, is one into which Brazilians would fit naturally, um, although uh, some of them have tried to deny it. And I kind sure. of try to narrate and criticize some of that in the book. Okay. Uh, we are talking with Dr. Joao Chavez. And his book is Migrational Religion, Baylor University Press. This is a Classical Ideas podcast, and I am guest hosting. My name is Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. This is the journey you pick for your pastors, or at least the one that you're kind of crafting for them as you interviewed them, uh, that there's a journey from a crisis to a discomfort to an acceptance and a defense of the undocumented. So maybe they start out with not wanting to get their hands dirty, let's just say, because it is messy. Uh, The migration, immigration crisis in this country is uh, endemic. It shows no sign of stopping. It is centuries old. And and it it probably, for political reasons, people don't want it stopped, right? They don't want it uh, solved. They don't want the problem solved. And these pastors that you saw them go through this process, Kind of 
Describe that for us. If, if you can give us, uh, put a, the name to one of these um, mm -hmm. pastors and, and tell us that story. Yeah, that, that particular chapter, I, 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 I do not mention the names of the pastors just because some of them say of things that might get them in trouble. Yes. But, uh, but it is a, that is a, a, a fascinating story uh, of, of a few pastors that I trace. Some of them, um, interestingly, they are writing for denominational papers in Brazil while they are here. So they are mentioning their struggles here and how they are developing within that struggle. So they're so in, for their audiences in Brazil. Um, and, um, and, and others uh, you know, just uh, talk about that in their own diaries, some of them in their it shows in the minutes of their church and some of them I had conversations with. One of them particularly, and I, I mentioned many of them in, in, in the chapter that I'll deal with this, he actually called immigration services when he got here, when he discovered, so he came to the church and then he finds out there are so many undocumented uh, folks in the church and he doesn't know what to do because on one end he has this moralistic Southern Baptist mm -hmm. rooted mm -hmm. theology that he sure. learned in, the, in his Baptist seminary in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he comes and this is morally wrong. These people are against the law. Mm -hmm. um, what do I do? So he called immigration. Wow. And, uh, and they, the immigration officer told him, what is in the sign in front of your church? And he said the name of the church. Mm. And, the, and, the, and this is how he recalled the conversation. And the immigration agent said, well, can then be a pastor. Let us be immigration agents. Wow. Right? So, wow. uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, gets, <laughs> he got pastoral lessons, I say, in the, in the book from, from an immigration officer. Uh, yeah. And then uh, talking to this pastor, he goes from there to campaigning for Hillary Clinton from his pulpit because of what Trump would do to immigrants. Yes, that was uh, a fascinating story. Yeah, and um, I asked him, weren't, weren't you scared of losing your 501c3, you know, your tax mm -hmm. exempt status mm -hmm. um, by doing partisan politics yeah, yeah. Uh, from, from the pulpit? And he said, no, I, I will risk anything for my people. Wow. wow. Yeah. You know, yeah that, and, uh, that's quite a shift. It's quite a change. It is. It is. It is a very, very big shift. And one other pastor that I, 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 I talk about, he, uh, his, his moment of enlightenment, uh, mm -hmm. if I could put it that way, or, or, <laughs> or, 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 or of a, where the crisis tipped the point yes, for him, yes. he was walking in a brick paver street in Florida. Um, and uh, he actually, he's, he's one of those who write to Brazil and he's recounting that. And he said, oh, a lot of people who do brick pavers in Florida are Brazilian immigrants. Mm -hmm. And he was like, so I'm walking in the streets and I'm thinking my salary is paid for by these people who, you know, who, uh, who, who work in these harsh conditions and do this construction work. And why, what am I, you know, uh, going to, uh, going to do with this and then he goes on and he begins reflecting on the 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 dreamers you know the people who uh the the adolescents who came because they were brought by their parents but now can't go to college so he's having to wrestle with that mm -hmm. um so he starts there and then clearly he moves to everybody you know this is not wrong just for these kids is i mean there's no morality in this legislation itself you know so right. and then he he, he criticizes bush Mm -hmm. They said even presidents like Bush, who claim they are Christian, do not, you know, kind of, although Bush tried to push for immigration reform, right? He says, uh, you know, the, the rule, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, 
uh, and but I quote him in the book says the the what rules in the U.S. is the dollar, you know. So the, yes. this awareness yes. that there is some profit to be gained from this situation is not about is not about doing you know what uh, what what's best or what's Christian. Even when we have a Christian president, it is how these dynamics inform uh, you know uh, the 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 structures of power and profit. Right, right, very good. Uh, the last few minutes, I'm. You know, one of the topics that I have immersed myself in for way too long, <laughs> over 20 years now, but I was fascinated by this chapter, this Pentecostalization. And, you know, when you think about Pentecostalism, if, uh, you know, to kind of set the table broadly, um, in terms of Protestantism, Pentecostals and Baptists, not, not in the same league, you know, not uh, very, very different theologies, very, very different dynamics. Uh, I would same missionary and evangelical zeal for sure for conversions um but uh you know you found this in the churches that you were studying is that uh, essentially what has happened in a lot of latin american protestantism which is this pentecostalization phenomenon was brought over through these migration patterns or did it exist here already what what did you find yeah so it in these churches are very interesting because um you are right that uh, although uh, there are some early connections uh, between Baptists and Pentecostals in Brazil, for example, uh, you have the Assemblies of God um, and, and that uh, that begins in Brazil via Swedish immigrants who went to uh, William Durham's church in Chicago, who was a Baptist. Right. Right. Um, right? And and they go to to Eric Nelson's, a Southern Baptist missionary who is Swedish, but is in Brazil. Mm -hmm. They go to his church because they are Swedish also. They try to convert the church to Pentecostalism. Um, and, and there's a problem. There's a split. They leave. That's how the Assemblies of God, that's the biggest uh, denomination in Brazil today, um, uh, kind of begins. As a matter of fact, one of a uh, recent history of, uh, of um, the Assemblies of God um, the, the historian says, a very respected historian, he says that uh, the Assemblies of God in Brazil has to deny and to, and to go against Baptists because, and Baptists against them because they're actually so much alike you know, in some ways. Oh. You know, they begin, they begin in... Uh, so what happens then, uh, that, that, that idea or that story, and we talked about how narratives are deployed and used, right? So sure. this... this, this narrative of the Pentecostals trying to absorb the Baptist church, you know, sure. in that Eric Nelson keep, keeps on, on being redeployed as they are the enemy within, within, but they, they are very, they are fierce competitors, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the 1960s, a mission, the Southern Baptist missionary, a single woman widow by, by the name of Rosalie Mills Appleby, who is, uh, very much into the Keswick movement, but uh, uh, well, the Keswick ideas uh, and uh, uh, might or might not have been charismatic herself. She starts mentoring folks who end up becoming charismatic, charismatic slash Pentecostals in the from the 50s to the 60s. That causes a split within the mm -hmm. Brazilian Baptist denomination. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you have two denominations there, one that is charismatic, the, the, the National Baptist Convention, and the Brazilian Baptist Convention that is not only non-charismatic, but has been historically anti-charismatic, oh, okay. anti-Pentecostal. Yeah. 
So you have these pastors that come here, they come with that mentality from the Brazilian Baptist Convention mm -hmm. uh, that they are not Pentecostal. Okay. But the problem they face is that the majority of, because of the way that migration dynamics mm -hmm. uh, have played out, and there are some studies that uh, about Brazilian migration that say, that suggest that uh, Pentecostals migrate in much larger numbers than any other religious sensibility in Brazil. Uh, so what happened is this, this, these migrants come in and, and uh, many times the Baptist churches in these communities uh, or in, this, in the cities they go to are the oldest churches. They are, they are been there, they're most established, sometimes the only one. Mm -hmm. They end up going to a Baptist church, not because they're Baptist, but because they're Brazilian. Yeah. And, it, and, it, okay. and that's, the only, that's the only Brazilian church there. And then you have the issue of the Baptist polity, which is allegedly democratic. People vote right. Right. on things. So then what happens when you have a huge number of Pentecostals, they outnumber anybody else in, a, in the church that's struggling to remain Baptist because the pastor, maybe the treasurer is Baptist sure. and a few sure. other members, yeah. but the great majority of folks are Pentecostal. Well, they have to negotiate that. So I went to a I went to a multi-site church in the Bay Area, for example, mm -hmm. and I I, I I went to their I, I I frequented their Wednesday night service. So the Sunday service there was uh, not a lot of speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes here and there, not every Sunday. But you go to the and the the the, the pastor was a Baptist, trained in a Baptist seminary from the Baptist convention. Would deny he was Pentecostal. But then you go to the Wednesday service that was led by his co-pastor, and he was ordained by the Four Square Church. Oh, okay. Right, and um, and and the literature that we we would read was from CPAD, which is the publishing house of the Assemblies of God yeah. in Brazil, and their leadership was there being trained in in, in that mentality. And another pastor who I who was past, pastored a mega church in Florida, he would say, well. I try to control if, how people become more or less Pentecostal by the way in which I uh, I invite speakers. So I try to control so they they don't they don't take over. He mentioned, but 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 in the, in Wednesday services, a week services, they can have fully Pentecostal service. That's how I negotiate uh, the fact, and this is his language. He would say, and let's go and negotiate the fact that there are so many of them and they are happy here, but but they don't take over. Oh, you know, yeah. Saw, well, that's just so pragmatic. It's just uh, and so so typically, you know, Protestant, well, typically religious, right? I mean, because you're, you're dealing with competition and you don't want to lose. There's the language is a very capitalist language of losing and gaining and controlling mm -hmm. and market share almost. Right. So as right. long as they have their their share, you know, they won't take over, right? And so you're you're trying to keep your shareholders happy, if you will, in this in this context, right? So it's 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 just really interesting how all of this plays out. Uh, and of course, in the larger scheme of it, uh, the, the the narratives and the language is always about maintaining purity, maintaining this fealty to to certain theological positions that are immovable. And as we know, for those of us who study religion long enough. Almost everything is movable, right? Almost, right. Every, almost everything is negotiable. Everything's right. negotiable. No, Let's just say it. Everything's negotiable. Yeah. That, no, that, that's, that, that, is, that, is, that, is complete, that is completely right. And it, it's very interesting because some of the pastors would say, uh, my, my, my church is not Baptist. There's the name Baptist out there. But really, 
we are not Baptist. And then, and some of them would say, I like the neo-Pentecostals or the, yeah. you know, the third wave of Brazilian Pentecostalism, sure, sure. Uh, the, the more indigenous, you know, kind of uh, yeah. ones. Uh, I like them a lot because they are used to respect their pastors. Baptists don't respect their pastors. Pentecostals do. So, uh, you know, so yeah. I, so uh, pastors would some, a couple of them said, so I like them and they like it here. So there is a now, now we used to be the only one pastor told me we used to be the only Brazilian church here. Now there are others, but the Pentecostals stayed because they like the way we do things. Um, and I like them because they respect the pastors a lot more than Baptists. So I'm not looking for Baptists. If Pentecostals want to stay here in my church, there's the Baptist sign in the front. But I'm yeah. just fine with that. So again, extremely pragmatic. And some of them do not want to loosen their Baptist affiliation for another pragmatic market-driven reason, which is that sometimes they do get uh, benefits, financial benefits and otherwise, from being affiliated to the Southern Baptist Convention. But they also would say, as they said, and I quote them in the book, saying, well, we are affiliated with them. They are a big mama. But if they come here and see what, uh, what we are doing, they are going to say, kick him out. Yeah, so just make sure they don't visit, or make sure they yeah. visit on those. Make sure they visit on the Sundays where, where you know, the more traditional Baptists are in charge. Like, go to Sunday, don't go to Wednesday, right? I mean, right. that's that you're trying to maintain that control. Yeah. Um, another thing about Pentecostalization in Latin America, as as you know, um, is that Pentecostalism, at least one of the theories of why it grows, and we've all been trying to solve this this issue for well, solving is probably a wrong. Um, among word there, but we've been trying to understand why it grows, if you will. And one of the ideas happens to be, you know, that women, women find auxiliary roles, not only auxiliary roles of power, but they, they find roles of being pastors in some of these churches. Um, and as, as uh, for, for our listeners, um, to my knowledge, the Brazilian Baptists that you study do not ordain women. So could it possibly be that maybe there's a, there's a, an auxiliary role for women in this Pentecostalization process where they're finding sources of power in your, the churches that you studied, or they might not find it in the, the official kind of roles of the Baptist church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I, the short answer is I don't know, but I have an opinion. Sure. Uh, the, 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 um, I mean, the, what, what, just one thing about the Brazilian Baptist Convention, and this mm -hmm. is the one point in which they nod towards a difference from the Southern Baptists mm -hmm. is that they have allowed the, the state chapters of their order of pastors to decide if they're going to ordain women or not. So, mm -hmm. so you can, if you are in Sao Paulo, for example, in Brazil, mm -hmm. the order of pastors might ordain women, whereas if it was in Minas Gerais, the order of pastors of that state might not. Okay. Right? So the, okay. they, they, they allow for state convention so to speak uh, uh autonomy there but here these churches are officially southern baptist churches like they they are affiliated to because the brazilian baptist convention does not allow for baptist churches outside the brazilian territory to be affiliated to them mm. and as i tell in the book some of the churches here try to force them to to change the bylaws and the argument was again they by by contributed in dollar they will be contributing more than a lot of states in brazil contribute so why not change it we don't right. want to be southern baptist we want to be brazilian baptist change it we're going to contribute money let it happen but then because of some missionary 
uh, involvement and, and others' uh, involvement of the, the Southern Baptist Convention, there was the opposition and it didn't go through. Mm. But, that, but all, all of that to say that uh, in, in the, the churches here, some of them have ordained women and the, and the, um, the association for the, for the, of uh, Baptist pastors in North America, um, when I finished the kind of the, 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 I stopped doing the ethnographic work around 2017, mm -hmm. they were on the verge of deciding uh, to officialize that amongst mm -hmm. them. So some churches do have uh, women ordained pastors, uh, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting when you talk to, and I, I did make a point of, of talking to pastors who had just arrived and some who were here for longer, those who just arrived are shocked by this. Um, you know, this one of them told me we are trained in the same seminaries. We have the same reform theology, uh, but um, you know, but you know, I mean, I don't know what happens. They become liberalized here, and he's yes. right to an extent. They do become liberalized, and 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 part of this, I argue, is uh, not only the fact that uh, there is more. Uh, women leadership that comes with the Pentecostalization itself, mm -hmm. but also that is more women financial independence here than comparatively in Brazil. And I think that forces mm -hmm. uh, that, 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 that forces these leaders to rethink how they're going to approach uh, that very important, most numerous, most committed sector of their communities, a woman. Right, 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 right. Uh, we are talking to Dr. Zhao Chavez, and his book is Migrational Religion, Baylor University Press, um, on um, something that doesn't get, I guess, needed into the great big dough that uh, we're trying to build here, if you will, mixing metaphors of Latinx religion, you know, as Brazilian religion. It's even when it's studied globally, it's separate unto itself. but. Uh, as you know, you know, we have to talk about Afro-Brazilian. Um, we have to talk about race. We have to talk about all kinds of things. It's, it is much more complicated than um, uh, maybe a lot of US-based students or researchers have given it a, a good look, because uh, it, it, it is definitely complex. It's almost like a uh, if you're doing geology, right? just layers and layers and layers of and uncovering it that, that's um, often not, it's not a part of our broader discussions, right? It's not a part of our broader um, conferences. It's not a part of our broader uh, research networks. It's kind of separated onto itself. And I would like to think that part of that is language, right? That, that you, there's plenty and plenty of wonderful researchers and scholars that we both uh, know who are fluent in Spanish and can read those, those documents and those archives, less so Portuguese. Right, and so maybe part of it might be just pragmatic, very practical. Is that some of us just don't have the tools? But it's just—it's fascinating work. It really is, and I'm, I'm glad that you did it. I really am. I mean, I, I was reading—you know—I read it and going, you know, there's some links here, and then there's some differences, and then there's some links to other other Latinx groups, and then there's not. Right? I mean, what's uh, if you want to encapsulate for us? What's just the most interesting find of finding that you had in your research that that you would like others to know, maybe those of us who've danced around Latinx religion, those listening to the podcast who are really wet in their, their appetites for the first time in this, this subfield, 
for lack of a better word. What do you what do you want us to a big takeaway? Well, thank you for that question. I haven't thought about that in terms of in this broader terms of the field, but I do think there was what, what was what was surprising here to me in some ways. A, a few things. One of them is 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 how um, this group that part that, that is circumscribed within a loosely defined denomination of sensibility, right? Um, how how interested it was to see how they organized here and try to pressure the denomination back in their in their host country um, by using the privileges, financial and otherwise that these communities have obtained in the US. Because uh, uh, some of these churches, like uh, I can mention a few of them that they started as small uh, congregations of brother, uh, predominantly white churches and end up buying the whole campus of, of the church. I mean, there, there are some, church, some of these churches are very large mm -hmm. uh, and they have, they have become um, kind of powerhouses in a way. Mm -hmm. um, of, um, of this kind of transnational Brazil-US networks. And sometimes they have pressured uh, or, uh, the, 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 the convention back home to change um, from, from here. Um, but it's, it's a very, very, as a very it's, this was very interesting to me how sometimes, um, you know, you see, the, I wonder how common that is because uh, there is a move and there are good reasons for this uh, from studying denominations to studying networks. I understand why, and, mm -hmm. and I think it's something that, that needs to continue. Uh, but, but one thing that, uh, that one kinds of lose in this post-denominational turn um, is seeing how these networks uh, or these communities of immigrants abroad sometimes uh, try to um, exert their power um, you know, in, in, in other parts of the world and in their home country as well. Um, so that, that, was, that was a really, really interesting to me. I, I do not know how common that is, mm -hmm. um, but uh, it will be interesting to me to, uh, to kind of understand that, to see more of these denominational, denominationally bounded studies to see if this, uh, if, if this happens and to what extent it happens. Uh, connected to this, um, is the idea of uh, of a transnational reputation as well? Well, ha pastors who got in trouble here uh, were had issues in Brazil because uh, it, the, the the leaders here made a point to go back and and publish everywhere that the person who pastored here shouldn't be trusted for this, 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 and that. Same thing, vice versa, right? So, yeah. I mean, the the yeah. I think that the depth and the width of the way in which these communities really live simultaneously in two worlds yeah. uh, really comes to to uh, to kind to to light in in, um, in 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 studies like like this. Uh, another thing, and I'll, I'll I'll stop with two because I, sure. I know I can go on. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> another thing that I found very interesting is. Uh, in this particular group, and I say this in a sentence, mm -hmm. uh, I say that my claim is that in terms of Brazilian Baptists, the close they get to the closer they get to Southern to the Southern Baptist geographically, mm -hmm. the farther they get from them ideologically, mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and and because the migration dynamic, and they start to notice that. Uh, so so uh, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and I do not have an answer to this, but I think that this kind of insight from this book kind of start me in that direction is thinking about how 
in, evan in evangelicalism, particularly evangelicalism of the United States brand with all its power and influence, mm -hmm. is, is uh, uh, it, it, it uh, exerts its influence easier from a distance uh, without, without having these evangelical communities experiencing them uh, on a daily basis, what their political commitments mean to people who look uh, like, like you and who, and who come from where you come from. Uh, what, what do white supremacy feels like when you're a neighbor to this? What does it mean to have this, this Southern Baptist denomination that you used to worship in the seminary that you were trained, uh, you know, have come to you like it happened to one of these pastors, have the pastor of the church that is hosting you come to you and say, when you are walking on a sidewalk, we want you to move to the other one because yeah. we don't want to walk yeah. in the same sidewalk as you, yeah. you know? That's uh, right. and so um, I, I wonder in a more conceptual level that I didn't pursue, pursue here, but at least in this particular group, it, it, it seems that in the, which is the Southern Baptist Convention that has tremendous power mm -hmm. in Brazil as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still today uh, in, in, in some very important ways, uh, how they, the mechanism by which they maintain the kind of uh, um, colonial mentality, theologically colonialism yeah. uh, or theologically colonial mentality back in Brazil is facilitated by distance uh, and it would be problematized by proximity. Proximity complexifies, makes it harder to, to sustain this, uh, this idea uh, that these theologies are adequate uh, for, for uh, living life uh, in the Latin American context. I think that... Uh, yeah. Uh, this is something that needs to be fleshed out, but uh, uh, that I've been thinking about that, that is, is true here, but I do not know what that means at a broader conceptual sure. level. Hopefully sure. I have some time to think about that more in the future. Well, that's, that, is, that is great. That's just really interesting. I never even thought of that, but yeah, no. I mean, that's now all of these little um, pastors and folks who I've talked to over the years just come to mind now with all of the kind of like, what is the theology of the slight? Right, the, 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 the theology of, of, you know, the, the hot term is microaggression, right? But it's like mm -hmm. stripping it of, of the language. It's like, it's when you slight someone, it's when you insult someone, it's when you hurt their pride. It's when you, it's when you, essentially the first time you see someone close up uh, and you realize that they're not what you thought they were, right? And that right. they're, and that the very basic kind of, uh, basic sustenance of Christian life of, of, uh, neighborliness and helping people out and being a good person right uh stripped of all the theological language of just trying to make you and me better is kind of tossed on its head because again we don't deal adequately with the colonial nature of of what this religion has done to the americas and what's been done to it by americans of all stripes right and it's we don't really complexify that at all right that's that's a tough one. Uh, it is just... a, it's, it is a very tough one. I mean, if if you go if if you go deep enough yeah. in, in in that direction and, and and how it even changes the way in which we obtain and create knowledge, right? How That's having right. a book, how having a book from a university press in some ways is part of a of an adaptation into these the realities and structures that that very 
colonialism sort of create and establish and names what is excellence. And I mean, there's so much uh, yeah. to be to be kind of uh, peeled from that. That it's yeah. uh, and it certainly influences this this communities uh, here in, in 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 deep ways. That's right. Thank you so much for this discussion. Uh, I have been speaking with Dr. Zhao Chavez, and the title of the book is Migrational Religion, Bailey University Press. This is a Classical Ideas podcast. Thank you again. I haven't seen you, you since Texas. And That's you, uh, right, well. you don't look any worse for wear. I'm in my closet. <laughs> I'm in my closet, but I'm going to turn on my uh, camera now so you can see. <laughs> Hopefully you can see. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, it's been fun. It's All been a right, lot, a lot of fun. I know, oh, and you stay closed. You. It's so embarrassing. But <laughs> um, yeah, really good stuff. Thank you so much for this. And uh, I hope to see you again real soon. I'm going to be looking for some more good stuff from you in the future. Because uh, this you. is one of the things that I, I, you know, I could read this stuff for days, as you know. Just anything about religion and ethnicity. Just like, yeah. absolutely. Thanks again. Well, thank you very much. You were very kind. Thank you for your time. And again, I, I also hope to see you again, maybe for, for coffee in the future when we are really, really post-COVID. I, I would love that very much. Absolutely. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye.